There we go. Those are sweet tunes. A Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krause, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxygen Partners. Bum, 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 money talks. But they don't sing and dance. I'll turn it over to you, Trevor. Welcome to the first ever live recording of A Healthy Dose. At the Lyric Partners Healthcare Summit in Chatham, Massachusetts, Trevor and Steve sit down with Ravi Sakdev, Carl Byers, Robin Heffernan, and Tim Murphy to review the first half of 2017. Most of you out there probably have actually never heard the podcast. <laughs> I think Steve and I think our moms are the only two people who listen, but I do want to honor a very important guest today, Steve's father actually came to see the podcast recording. So Hal Krauss, welcome. Uh, as I said, you've, uh, you've raised a nice son. So now we have our moms and one dad. So yes, yeah, exactly. Good. We have three well, listeners. This is, this is actually a cumulative <laughs> listenership of a healthy yeah. dose. I also want to thank Ryan Stewart and the Learing guys. We are actually recording our first live conference-based podcast here in Chatham, Massachusetts at the Learing Healthcare Conference, which has been a pretty yeah. amazing group of people. So thank you very much. And, in a healthy dose tradition, we do a quarterly review of the industry. This is uh, the mid-year update. We almost always have some form of cocktail. Today we are drinking red wine with our podcast guests. It's Friday. Afternoon. The market must be good. We're in Chatham drinking red wine. Yeah, right? perfect. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Healthcare's good. And so today we will talk about a series of themes. It's less company-specific and more broad trends of what's going on. So with that, I want to actually introduce two friends, Ravi Sakdev from Clayton Dubler Rice who is here, he ran healthcare services at JP Morgan. Many of you probably know him from his prior life and then he flipped over to private equity and has proceeded to make two investments that were featured on stage here today, Agilon as well as Best First Choice and is doing some pretty big things. And then Carl Byers who is today with F Prime Capital and I think many people know him either from his teachings at Harvard Business School but most notably for keeping Jonathan Bush in control for all those years as the CFO of Athena. We're happy to have both of you guys. It's my pleasure to introduce Robin Heffernan, who is a serial entrepreneur. She started, I think, three companies, if I'm correct, um, two of which have been successfully sold, Epidemico and Predalytics, and is now the founder and CEO of a really interesting company called Circulation, which hopefully Robin will talk a little bit about. And then my great pleasure to introduce Tim Murphy, who has a fascinating career, started off as an investment banker, then actually worked in Massachusetts state government. Tim was one of the people who actually helped get the transformative Massachusetts healthcare reform bill passed, which was frankly you know, a major predicate for national policy. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about policy today, and I think Tim will be a, a great guy to talk to. And now he runs for 10 years, has been running as CEO Beacon Health, which is a very substantive company in the behavioral health space and much success there. So thanks for joining us. We're sitting here six months gone into the year 2017. We're doing a sort of halfway point check-in, and I guess we cannot not talk about Trump care. And so, you know, when I want to find out what's going on with one of the most important pieces of legislation in the country, I try to read a lot, but you know, my time's limited, so I ultimately go to Twitter. And so I wanted to pull up one of the leading analysts, what he said about this bill that was put in front of the Senate. And actually, I definitely have to drink before I do this, given what he wrote. Uh, I'm very supportive of the Senate hashtag healthcare bill. Look forward to making it really special. Remember, Obamacare is dead. 
That's our president, ladies and gentlemen, the Twitter in chief, uh, with his you know, very deep analysis of the bill. But let me turn it over to our experts. So one, is Obamacare dead? And two, will Trump care be special? Tim, you spent a lot of time in the policy space. How can I not ask you? Sure. Um, you know, if I come at it from a political lens, from my perspective, the Republicans are staring at the abyss. For seven years, they've said that Obamacare needs to go. It needs to go. And they have won 32 out of 50 governorships. They've won over 1,000 legislative seats in the country and control most state legislatures. And they have the House and the Senate, and now they have the presidency. And a lot of that language has been around that bill. And so you can look at what the House did and say that's bad policy, and I would concur. And you can look at what was released yesterday in the Senate, which is mildly better on a relative basis. And there's all sorts of conversations today about McConnell doesn't have the votes, and there's four senators who aren't going to get there. I would not discount the fact that they will drive to pass a bill. And there is no Trump care, because he doesn't have a thought on it. He will sign anything. And so therefore, it's about Ryan and McConnell driving to something that they can get you know, 50 plus one in the Senate, and something they can push through the Freedom Caucus. And it will not surprise me that we will wake up sometime over the month of July, and there will be a bill. And then, I guess I would say this, then the next inning of healthcare begins. Robbie, I mean, you've sat at one of the leading investment banks, right? And I'm sure you had a lot of global thinkers in your time looking at this. You now sit at one of the leading private equity firms. Like, there's going to be a bill. I agree with Tim. Let's, let's assume that's the case, right? Is this good for our industry? I mean, we've spent so much time focused on ACA, and now we have a whole new regime. What, what do you think? Well, first, I think Tim's 100% right. I think the political dynamic is such that we are going to end up where Tim described. And I think the assessment that the next inning starts, I think the, the thing that is a little bit different this time than what we just went through last time, which was pretty meaningful change, is that there is a sense that the private sector is going in the direction that it needs to go and that that will continue on. So I don't think we're going to take this massive step backward and start over. I think there will be tweaks around the edges, but I think to some degree, if you think about how Tim started, which is this is largely a political dynamic mm -hmm. that is somewhat removed from what's actually happening in the industry and is happening among private market participants, whether they be the hospitals or the insurance companies, I think they are going to continue to march forward. I think they will march forward with some hesitation. But I also think that you know, one of the things that's interesting about the Senate bill that reflects the fact that it's a very political dynamic is that if you look at the decision they made around Medicaid, which is really to push it out, is really to kick the can to some degree on the decision-making process. And yeah, so none, if I, none of those senators want to be up for election when that thing comes right, down. Yeah. Right. And so I think you know, as someone who has a, a footprint in the Medicaid market today through a business that we own, you know, I think our belief is that we are going to continue to march forward in the Medicaid business. Mm. And so that's my perspective. Yeah, I want to talk about Medicaid. But before doing that, it feels like the Republicans changed the voting dynamics in the country to take control of government. And there's a lot of speculation that this health care bill is not actually good for the constituents that voted them into office. How do you reconcile that if you're passing this bill? Because you have to. But ultimately, a lot of the policy in it is not actually benefiting the individual voters. Someone said that this is not repeal and replace, it's rename. You know, it was Obamacare, and now it's Trump care, so it's beautiful, you know, even though <laughs> structurally similar. You meant to say it's huge. 
it's huge. It's huge. Or and sad. I, and I think that my own take is that I think the GOP traditional political base has not included a lot of Medicaid yeah, recipients. Right. And so if you want to fund a tax cut, it's a great financial target. But I think you're right that a lot of the people who are the incremental voter in this last cycle might be impacted by yeah. this. It's interesting, Trevor. You know, I, I was reading that for the first time, ACA, Obamacare, the approval rating just passed 50%. It's at 51% today as we sit here today. And Trump Care, or I mean, I guess the AHCA, the Republican House bill, is at 30% popularity in the country. So there's some massive disconnect going on right here. Well, I think what's going to happen, though, is like, they'll pass a bill, and then they're going to basically say there's a Section 1332 waiver, and we're going to go state-based initiatives, and they're going to throw different incentives at states to kind of get to where they need to be. They just need to get the political conversation off of them, and they're going to push yep. it back over. And to Ravi's point, there's going to be a couple elections between now and what ultimate phase-out looks like. And what I think you're just going to end up with is a bunch of governors going up and working with SEMA and CMS and going and figuring it out within the contours of what is going to be an escape hatch under those Section 1332 provisions. You know what it leads to, to some degree, which is really interesting, is what you said is, that the innovation that we have been talking about for a long time, for example, at the CMS level, and that we all look to CMS to drive innovation, whether it be bundled payment or other things like that, that it will be very state-driven, I think, on a go-forward basis. I think that the push-out that you described, which essentially, because of the political dynamics in the country, they're going to say, look, this is your issue to deal with. And so as we think about this whole debate we've had today about local versus national, the opportunity in a local level, I think, to drive change is pretty significant. I'm just going to jump in there. I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I've been thinking about this, right? Obamacare was one part access and a massive increase in access, both through the individual commercial mm -hmm. market and also expansion Medicaid. But the other major part was payment reform, right? And if you think about the entire debate right now that's going on, it's all about access. The payment reform side is, is pretty much intact. I'm curious, do you guys agree with that? Because that's where a lot of the innovation has been from the CMS effort. You think payment reform's here to stay? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. Look, you know, at some level, right, there needs to be value for the healthcare dollar, which is what all the panels earlier today were about. And so I think some element here is the federal government's trying to put a box on what their exposure is going to be. And so therefore, they're not going to unwind things that just help them tamp down trend. I, I would say just on a more macro basis, as they pass this law and how it plays itself out, I think they're going to challenge states to say, cover as many people as you can, come up with state-based solutions. Yeah. But I think what they might then say is, we're going to give you trend plus X, and you've got to work within an right. economic box. That is what they're saying. I think payment, yeah. you know, to some degree, it's exactly right. Payment reform and, to some degree, the lack of delivery system reform that has come with payment reform gets turbocharged because of what you just said. Interesting. Right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask, before we go to Medicaid, I want to ask one question. Robin, Robbie and Tim and Carl, when he was CFO of Athena, at the later stage, were you know, bigger companies. And that's going to impact your top line and bottom line, the change. But what about entrepreneurs? I mean, you're, you're early stage. I mean, what do you think this is doing to the entrepreneurial community? We're early stage, and we're also politically agnostic. I mean, we intentionally chose a business model that we don't care who's paying. Right? At the end of the day, someone still has a host of services. They need coordinated, they need access to and from, so great, we'll work with whoever. But I do think there, I mean, I have some friends that are in the MA space, they run Oak Street, they help with Aora, right? Other groups that are fundamentally linked to payments in which way the wind goes. So I, I think it affects small startups as well as large companies. Uh, like 90% of the talk this morning was around Medicare. Yeah. And so much of 
Trump cares about, it's going to be about Medicaid, so we'll put Marcus Osborne on the spot who's in the audience. Aside from actually Medicaid, the entity that probably touches and interacts with the most Medicaid members in the country is, is likely Walmart on a daily, weekly basis, Apple and Amazon. So those three entities across the panel, start with you, Robin. Of those three, who do you think ultimately has the biggest opportunity to impact? Everyone's focused on risk and value-based care and yeah. Medicare. We're going to eventually have to get there in Medicaid. Can any of those three players really ultimately impact that population on a risk base? I think they're super interesting. I actually feel like the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon has really just started to, to trigger people to look at Amazon and say, wow, they could, they could do healthcare. I mean, they, part of what we see in healthcare and believe in is you, know, you need someone you trust to give you information. You need good information to sort of power that. And, but at the end of the day, everyone is a consumer. Right? I mean, I think what Marcus said about this fundamentally being a retail play and consumers, they want something instantly, they, they want something tangible. And Amazon has proven, look, I, I can give you books and I can give you movies. Now I can give you pills. And I have things like Alexa or Siri or Google's got their own, always on, listening you know, understanding what questions and issues are up. So I think there is going to be a lot of non-traditional players who make a, a large statement in healthcare. Are there any skeptics here? Because, you know, listen, I have a partner who told me 10 years ago that every human being should have 10% of their net worth in Amazon. Turns out he was really smart. I didn't take up his trade at that time. But it's a great company. I mean, Jeff Bezos has taken down everything. But, you know, we've seen Google mess up at this. We've seen Microsoft. I mean, do we have any skeptics here that Amazon's not going to do this? Look, I think there's a debate for clearly the trajectory for Amazon or Apple is going to be very different in healthcare. You know, I think we've been having this conversation, which is one of the barriers for a long time has been that the consumer in healthcare has been captive, right? You had to get there through the insurance company, you had to get through through the employer. There wasn't really direct access to the consumer. But with the advent of HSAs and many of the things that we've been talking about here, the consumer will be more accessible in healthcare over time which I do think increases the likelihood that Amazon, as an example, can play, right? So I would not be surprised if Amazon was able to compete effectively in the pharmacy business. And how far does that go? Does that stop with, yeah, does that I, stop at discount cards and generics? Does that go all the way to PBM? Like, are they gonna be compounding specialty meds? What do, we, what do we think? I don't think that they're gonna be, well, I think some of those things that we have traditionally defined, like PBM as part of the supply chain, is going to evaporate in some way, shape, or form, right? And so, again, as you get access to the consumer differently, so if, for example, if physician organizations are taking risk now, right, the relevance of how you think about pharmacy and how pharmacy interacts with that system, it's going to be different, right? And so all of that change will allow some of these new competitors to come in, I think, pretty effectively. At what point in time can I log into my Amazon Prime account, have a primary care telemedicine visit where they diagnose asthma, and They're going to diagnose a lot of other things on YouTube. With me, yeah, that's <laughs> the least of my words. Yeah. So they'll diagnose asthma, and then immediately I purchase my meds, my inhaler. It's delivered. I purchase a space heater because cold exacerbates asthma, and I buy that off of Amazon. And they have the entire fulfillment of all the supplies based on a telemedicine primary care company. I'll sign up as a skeptic on that. I think that Amazon and Apple and Google will get 
attribution for a lot of the innovations that are occurring, but I don't think that they are driving the innovations in that area right now. I think, for example, in artificial intelligence, we've looked at every company in the space. There's two in London that are very good. There's one in Poland. There's one in Barcelona. There's a couple here in the US. And you can now get diagnosis off your smartphone. The doctors will say, that's pretty good. So what I would imagine is the innovation, like normally is the case, will happen with startups. And then someone will get it right. And then one of those guys will you know, buy it. And then we'll all hear about it. But I don't think, you know, with the, some exceptions, I don't think you're seeing the majority of the innovation happening from those companies. I do think Amazon's certainly having an effect on Walmart and, uh, and everyone else who does logistics and distribution. Tim, um, you look skeptical. No, I, well, I'm, I'm just thinking through it, and I concur. I mean, I think those players, I think, whether it's informatics or logistics, will be disruptive and help amplify some of the value within healthcare. But at the same time, I mean, this idea that we are anywhere near a person kind of experiencing what you just went through in terms of a telehealth, and they get this and they get that, and they think that that's going to be sufficient. I think we have a long way to go for that. You know, people might be economically rational on you know, getting a good value on how much toilet paper they buy. I think they become completely dependent upon a social engagement and a trust factor with someone that they know locally when it comes to their own health. Yep. And, and I just think that that just is going to take a long time to think that someone's just going to wake up one day and somehow disintermediate 100 plus years of local delivery of healthcare with treaters that you know and hospitals that you've been to. And, and then the other thing I would also say is, you know, it's one sixth of the GDP. And so, well, Amazon can come in and knock down Barnes and Noble. Are they going to really come down and knock down Mass General Hospital overnight? That's not happening. And I think the one thing to, to look at, we always look outside our industry. We look at Amazon or we look at Google. But if you actually look at the innovation that's happening in our own industry, right? So if you look at the new health plans that are being created, right? Those are in some ways analogous to what Amazon has done in their own business, right? Which is they have a really unique front end and they own the service, right? They own the customer experience. They own the distribution, right? And the health plans, for example, that are being created today are being created in some ways in that lens, right? Yep. Which is they're saying, look, I can't just own the front end. I can't just own the technology. I actually have to own the service to be able to deliver that experience for the consumer that actually changes something. And so I think to some degree, as opposed to looking at those guys coming into our industry, saying what will be the new service models that will disrupt what has happened historically, I think is potentially more like. I actually, I think it's a really good point. And, and let me just push one more step on that. Because if you think about, let's just take pharmacy as an example, right? And let's just say they want to become a PBM. To your point, you said Express Scripts and Caremark better watch out. But then owning the service would mean that literally people at Amazon would have to start doing contracting with you know, payers, with large employers. I mean, that is like not in their DNA. But do you think that, I mean, I've never done it, so I'm not going to say it's hard or easy. But do you think that's actually going to happen up there in Washington? No, but I think to some degree that's one of the reasons why these new service models will be the disruptors, is that you can't forget what you just described, which is you have to do things like payer contract. There are some blocking and tackling elements that are required to get access to the consumer that is somewhat protective of Amazon and some of these other guys. So I think that will be the question. But again, in certain areas of the healthcare industry, the consumer is becoming not as captive as they were. 100% agree. 100% agree. I think the theme from places like Amazon is consumer first, kind of in line with what Marcus was saying uh, from the Walmart standpoint. And so I think that theme should be front and center. 
I used to joke at Athena on Wall Street, I'd say, you know, this internet's going to be big someday. You know, and they would all chuckle. But we were the only company doing, you know, revenue cycle over the internet. Still pretty much is the only company doing that. Similarly, I would say, you know what, smartphones are going to be big. I predict it right now. And old people are using smartphones. Sick people have smartphones. And I think the one theme from Amazon is people don't want to leave their home. They want a, a good experience. And if you can see a doctor on their phone, if you can engage and chat with a care manager on your phone, if you can get the drugs delivered to the door, I think those are very powerful themes. The other thing I think is really powerful about Amazon and Google and Apple and Walmart, uh, as they see a large portion of the population, they understand how people think. And so the talk that we've had about how do you develop personas and then treat that persona or interact with that persona, Amazon, Walmart, Google, Apple, they know people. They may not know your chronic conditions right now, they don't know your behavioral health, but they know how you think and what you react to. Let's stay here for one more second and then promise we'll, we'll get off the cool kids and talk about non-tech companies. But Apple, you raised that, we talked about Apple. Different play, Apple this week basically announced that they've got a whole team of, of folks that are gonna focus on trying to make your phone your record of your personal you know, health. Carl, I'm sure you've seen this story play out many times. Um, what do you think, number one, is now the time for this? Have factors changed since 10 years ago? And two, do you think Apple can make a run at this successfully? I think they're experimenting, and that's helpful, because I think they're finding some areas where people do find value. I think on the infrastructure side for providers, there's still a long way to go. So we're seeing with Fire and with companies like Redox, yep. Medical records are starting to get opened up, and we'll have to have some time to like fumigate and like see what's really there and fix data issues. I think consumers aren't quite as curious about every aspect of their medical record as advertised. I think the question is really how do you create value for the consumer? And I go back to what I said before. If you can stay in your home and get the care you need, and providers can see through, whether it's an iPhone or an Android or some other device, whatever they need to to deliver care from a remote setting, that's powerful. So we're seeing, for example, in the area of care management, you know, the old model of police nurses calling the home phone number just doesn't work. Yep. But yep. if you have a mobile platform and you're chatting and you have some biometrics, that's very powerful. A company like Wellframe here locally is doing a great job of that. Yep. Yeah, and, I'm, and you know, since you mentioned it, I'm happy to share that we uh, Led in Series B that closed last week in Wellframe. We're very excited. Best product, best team to, to lead that revolution. Teed that one up for you, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so if you Steve listened, always knows everything. So. You've listened to a healthy dose. Steve always takes the conversations in this direction, so I'll take this off of your plate. There seems to be a disconnect between public valuations and private valuations in companies. Ravi, start with you. You spent a ton of time looking at this. We have seen one incredible company after another here at the Learing event. Almost every entrepreneur up here is building really transformational high impact businesses and valuations are growing. What's the next step? Do we start seeing monetizations on these in the next six to 12 months? And if so, where do they come from? That's a good question. I don't have a perfect answer by any stretch. That's why we have you on yeah. the panel. Uh, it's, well, the thing that's hard to figure out to some degree is that the excess amount of capital that is out there and the willingness of non-traditional folks from the healthcare world to come in has really allowed a lot of these companies to stay private longer, continue to finance themselves. And you could make a really strong argument 
that for these businesses that are trying to do something meaningful, that that's the right place for them to be. You know, and you know, if you actually look at the M&A that has happened, right, strategic M&A, at least as I've seen it, has really come down. Like you don't, you don't see a lot of that happening right now because there's a real disconnect between platforms and where these businesses are in their evolution. Right? That they need to kind of grow in the way that they are growing today. And so I think that one, these businesses are going to continue to stay private. I think there's a wealth of capital that will keep them private. I think it's a better universe for them to grow and mature in. I think the appetite for them in the public markets will be strong because I think the, there's a real bifurcation between old and new and that there's just not enough of what is new and where the world is going. So that I think that supply-demand imbalance to some degree, both between capital and good businesses, will keep valuations, I think, pretty high. I want high. to direct this, because you're probably a buyer, but also, also playing on both sides of this question. Mm -hmm. For me, um, we see almost every week somebody new coming into our company. And, and just to give people a sense, so we're managing about 47 million Americans, mental health, substance use, or EAP benefit, wow. right? And uh, we're privately held, but of significant size, about 5,000 employees. And we're a big payer. We're processing through $6 billion worth of uh, claims a year. Our approach has been, look, you know, we're interested in innovation. And we're interested to look at either technologies or different ways to do care management to better deliver for our members. And at the same time, we work within an economic box, which is pretty modest when it comes to behavioral health. And I think what we've sorted through is to say the following. one. We're not going to go and bet on anybody, like in terms of an acquisition strategy. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. We're going to pick and choose people that we think that we can incubate with and give them an opportunity on a pilot basis for client X or region Y. And then we're going to see what best in breed looks like. One of the things I will reflect upon over the past couple of years, I've always, anytime I've had these conversations, I'm, there's usually an imbalance right now about what people expect to get paid because of the value that they think that they're delivering versus what's really available within our particular area of yep. responsibility, that's got to get sorted. And so therefore, I've taken more of a skeptical approach about onboarding too much you know, as we kind of work through these things. Tons and tons of capital. We've just heard that there's a lot of money flowing into these companies. You get calls on a daily basis from people. Like, What's the valuation dynamic now between investors and early stage entrepreneurs? Yeah, there, there is a good amount of capital to go around. So we've been fortunate to have a lot of interest. I think it's good for us right now. We're very early. We do want to prove out the model significantly. Epidemico, actually, my second company was client funded. No VCs involved. So we would have loved to do that. This is just of a larger scale. This is part of your anti-portfolio, Steve. Is that also on the best? There's a lot, there's a lot of companies on that. <laughs> But, you know, it, it is nice to be able to stay private. And we're fortunate, so our Series A is closing, and we have some longer-term strategics that are in there as well, because the only thing we worry about somewhat with venture is, you know, the need to get, it, to get something out in three to five years, and maybe that's not the right answer. Robbie, I actually think your point is really a good one in that, you know, at Bessemer, we have both technology investment and healthcare, and our technology investors kind of lament this, you know, private IPO, right, because they want companies to get public, and... Companies like Uber and Instacart and what have you have endless amounts of capital. But I think on the healthcare side, I think you make a good point. I think there is actually a, a benefit to this because our industry takes a long time, you know, the sales cycle. So the ability to stay private and prove that you can, you know, march up the commercialization ramp and have a really successful sales machine. I think that's a, 
That's a really good point for our industry. I guess I can't sit here and not talk about AI and ML. Carl, you brought it up. Right now, it's 2017. 10 years from now, 2027, will robots be replacing doctors in any part of healthcare? I'm a fan of the idea that technology amplifies or, or magnifies a human relationship, doesn't entirely replace it. But with AI in particular, there are two very obvious use cases, I think, that can scale. One is make triage more effective. So there's a reference earlier to uh, Pager working with Horizon, for example. I mentioned the AI companies. If you're calling in for triage or if you're doing it self-serve, you can get a better answer. And then why not go straight to the lab for a test or straight to the specialist if you're 90% plus confident of the direction instead of going to the human symptom checker, AKA the primary care physician. So there's one. I think the other is in the medical office itself, in an evaluation and management visit, the doctor spends five minutes trying to figure out what's wrong yep. and then two minutes trying to figure out what to do about it. If you pre-process through this technology, then the physician's getting a hypothesis or two and she can figure it out from there but then is ultimately spending two minutes on evaluation. And then you have either more time for management or more time for more patients. One more thing on that, which is that, you know, we talked all today about payment model change. The payment model change and the fact that physician organizations or other delivery systems now have responsibility yeah, yeah. for outcome yeah, yeah. means that AI and, cost, and machine and learning yeah. is gonna be accelerated, right? Yeah. Because there's a real rational use for why you adopt. And, you know, the guys who are going out there and saying, I'm going to go create my own health plan, for example, are saying, you know what, I understand AI, I understand machine learning, as opposed to selling that as a service, I'm going to incorporate that into it, I'm going to own all the margin. Right. Right? right. And so I think that the fact that you've got real technology entrepreneurs who are starting health plans, as an example, I think you'll see big adoption of these things because they've got a real reward for investing. Right, so, so I totally agree with that. I think in healthcare, you've got to crawl, walk, run. Yeah. And so you're talking about the crawl use cases, and I'm sure every entrepreneur is thinking about how you use AI and ML in the business. But, but let me put this forward. I mean, I have no doubt, it's already happened in Silicon Valley, that AI and ML will be used to have cars drive by themselves in 10 years. So that's gonna happen with human lives at stake. Like, are they gonna be first-line pathology readers or first-line radiology read? Or is healthcare just too hard, too slow, too sclerotic, that that's never Well, you don't have to wait 10 years. You can already see machines doing radiology reads at or above humans. Oh, I agree. The technology's there. I'm just saying, is the system going to adopt it? Yeah. I think absolutely, right? I mean, at some point, the economics of it, the reliability will just make it obvious that you will do that. And you see this incrementally occurring. So to me, the trend is pretty clear on that front. I think from uh, where we sit at our company, the other part that we like about machine learning or AI is that we're dealing with people who have got very complex life situations, serious mental illness, a co-occurring substance use condition, usually you know, a chronic physical condition, and most importantly, social instability. And learning more and knowing more about what they're doing, what their lives are, ways in which we can process information more quickly, how we can have better interventions in more timely ways, to ensure that they remain stable. We're already playing with that a lot within our organization. We're sitting on a treasure trove of data that needs to be sorted because it's an older, you know, the company's been around for a while. Some of our systems are text-based, so natural language processing about what our clinicians are writing in about that person, how to sort that and, and percolate up the people that we should be engaging or telling the treater to be engaging 
the language you use, uh, we are crawling, but I think that there's going to be a pretty quick maturity curve on those things, and I think that that offers a lot of opportunities. Capacity demands. I mean, we work with primary care physicians in certain markets, and we say to them, look, let's go grow the patient population in this particular market, or let's grow the panel size. And they say, look, we just don't have enough capacity. Right? And so, you know, if there's the economic model that's right there and the capacity demands are such, I think you're going to see it. So it's automated care extenders, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, describing. just think about augmenting capacity or the, creating the next generation of capacity. Yeah, we've got a couple minutes left. Each one of you uh, not allowed to talk about the thing that you're doing currently, but the area of healthcare innovation or investment that you want to put 10% of your net worth in. This is where you do my deal flow sourcing for yeah. me. <laughs> what area do you like the best? I like the uh, integration of the financial system with healthcare. You know, my favorite company, I think a lot of people who know me know this, my favorite company in healthcare is probably health equity. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that that alignment that seems like is happening in the system is just going to continue on. And the idea that, again, very similar to Amazon, they're thinking about a different consumer front end, and they've got a really effective monetization vehicle, which is to own the assets in the system. I don't know. I think that's a kind of no-brainer way to play healthcare. I like the businesses that are not payers and not providers strictly, but they're adding a lot of value. So we heard from David Wenberg, we're investors at Quartet. That's a good example. People don't trust the payer, and the providers don't have the ability to do much more than what they're already doing. And so what you find, and it's a bit axial up here and others, is if a patient gets called from one of these tweeners and says, Dr. Byers wants you to talk with me, Patients are cool with that, and the doctor is cool with it too because they know they're not really capable, given their staff and their technology, of doing much follow-through. And so if someone can take that weight off their shoulders and deliver a good program, you know, whether it's Omada or whatever, that is great. Consumers like it because they know it's not the payer, and providers like it because they're going to get some information back, they're going to see a positive result, and they don't have to turn to their team of you know, hourly workers behind the glass window to try to get that stuff done. For the record, I do anything that Dr. Byers tells me to do, just, just to be clear. All right, what do you think, Robin? Beyond logistics, which I do, <laughs> I do like, obviously, I totally agree on this point of who's going to own that permission space in healthcare. Because that, you know, I feel like there's a bunch of technology and smart AI, and there'll be a bunch of great services, but who are you going to trust to answer a bunch of questions? And I also think it's not just the clinical questions and like, I stubbed my toe, you know, what should I do? It needs to be earlier. How do I want to eat? How do I want to think about exercise? You know, all of these things that, again, why I like Amazon or Siri or Google, like it's just who's going to own that space. I guess I'm not as targeted in terms of, you know, particular companies or sectors. My thought is more around there needs to be value for the healthcare dollar. And I think that we have to then micro-target that conversation because there are a very small percentage of people spending an awful lot of the dollars. Mm -hmm. And I think it's companies, whether on a, a horizontal basis or a vertical basis, who can intermediate and bring better rationality to the system of care on their behalf from a consumer-centric perspective, who are going to do well. And I think there's a multitude of players, many of them were up on this panels earlier today, who are iterating towards that and getting towards that. And ultimately, whether you're an employer or the federal government funding that, that's what you're trying to do. Because at some point, people are going to put a box on how much the growth can be. And those are the people I think are going to be successful. I have one last quick question. 
Thank you for a great panel, by the way. Thanks for spending the time with us today. All right, we sit here six months into the year. I want you to complete this sentence, each of you, for me. 2017 will be remembered in healthcare as the year of? Gyrating for a really no good cause. <laughs> gyrating for a really new good no, cause. No, 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 no good cause. Meaning I think no good it's going to be, the year's going to be about what's happening in Washington, and ultimately it's going to play itself out, and we're going to still do what we're doing and making the progress that we're making. 2017 will be the year of pressure on the underserved. Interesting. I'm hoping it's a year of sort of self-reflection. You know, as a country, we spend twice as much as Europe for not as good of a result. It doesn't even take AI, right, to be getting better life expectancy at lower cost in lots of other parts of the world. And so as we have this debate, you know, Trump care, et cetera, it's a mess, you know, and hopefully there'll be some sort of a realization that maybe we should take the pride down a notch and like get to work to actually make important changes. I always love Carl, but self-reflection is hard in 140 characters, right? <laughs> so, all right, Robin, you get the last word. 2017 will be remembered as the year for what in healthcare? I think it's in what is Trump care, which will be at the end of the day. Who knows? It didn't really do anything, but we talked a lot about it, and the year was that. Wow. Inspiring. <laughs> well, seriously, uh, thank you all for joining us on the panel. Thank you to Ryan and Leering for hosting us. Really appreciate it, and hope you have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes, and if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. We do okay.